I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a new book on the leadership roles women played in the early church, and I talk a bit more about why it's so important to understand the different kinds of literature in the Bible. So I'm standing here in my study looking out the window on an absolutely gorgeous sunny day. Today's March 20th, the final day of winter, and spring is right around the corner, literally tomorrow is the beginning of spring. Um, we're starting to see some signs of it here in West Michigan. Yes, there still is snow on the ground, um, but the sun is in the sky uh, a little differently. And it's, I don't know, feels like hope. Feels like hope for better weather around the corner. I had a blast this weekend. I was in uh, Springfield, Ohio with my friends Donna Becky and also joined by Steve and Ben. It was Becky's birthday Friday on St. Patrick's Day. And Don's band, Saving Pluto, had a uh, had a show on Friday night, and all that was a total blast. A lot of lot of laughs and uh, some crazy carousing. We also um, had an amazing breakfast Saturday morning. There's there's a place in Enon, Ohio, not far from Springfield, called uh, the Last Queen, and uh, it's a uh, an English gastropub. And I was totally excited about having one of my favorite breakfasts. I know I mentioned food a lot on this high quality podcast, but um, the prospect, the unexpected prospect of having a, an English cooked breakfast just got me so excited. And um, that's what I had along with a, a Bloody Mary. And it was fantastic. We had a great time there. I got to meet Adrian, uh, the owner of The Last Queen. Um, who shockingly actually listens to this podcast. How crazy, how absolutely crazy. Um, sort of a one in a million kind of a thing to run into one of the 17 listeners of this podcast. But that was really cool. Really wonderful to meet you, Adrian. I hope to make a, uh, a return visit um, and maybe enjoy some fish and chips or bangers and mash at some point. I... Uh, my my long year of well, it's stretched into more than one year of doing this. My long unexpected season of life in which I'm doing a ton of traveling continues. I'm going to go see uh, my friends John and Linda tomorrow, and then continue on my journey to see uh, one of my sisters, and then on my way back to see two more of my sisters. I saw yet another one of my sisters um, a week and a half ago while driving through. Lincoln, Nebraska. So anyway, a long season of travel and family and friends and that it's just been fantastic. And the wonder only continues. So last in the previous episode, I made some comments about uh, just random comments. I've been thinking about evangelism and um, just sort of the I, I think it's strikingly odd. Um, it's very, very unique, the, the way of thinking in American evangelical culture about evangelism. And um, I was raised in it, trained in it, heard, heard stuff about um, 
evangelizing my whole life, all the verses and all the, you know, the, the pressure being brought to bear and um, the prioritization of that activity as sort of the central aspect of being Christian and um, never really questioned that never ever enjoyed it or um, you know, enjoyed sort of having the anxiety sitting on me that I wasn't doing the thing that is so central to what it means to be Christian. Um, and I say that it's odd because when you actually go through the texts of the New Testament and you sort of see what's happening on the pages of the New Testament, um, evangelism is just not a priority. And uh, I know that that is striking. And then also when you look at the history of the church, um, this has only become something of a priority in the last you know, hundred years of, of, of American church history, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but I think that's more explainable in terms of how Christianity sort of unfolded and spread in, uh, in the United States. But that's not, it's, that's not the norm when it comes to what's unfolding in scripture and how uh, the church behaved itself through much of the world for much of history. So uh, I know evangelical people might imagine that they are, you know, the most sort of natural outcome of what the New Testament wanted to produce. Um, when you actually read these texts, that's just not the case. Also a, a related point, I was thinking about this. Um, and I think that this, this is what sort of sparked my comments uh, from the previous episode. That is um, just this, this, this odd way of um, in, in having any kind of discussion about any topic uh, among certain kinds of Christian folks, just the way that Bible passages are just referred to or thrown out there. Like, well, what about the Great Commission? Or, well, what about Romans 5? Or what about this? And um, what I'm always thinking is, let's actually take a closer look at that passage and see what's there. Um, because what I've come to understand as a biblical scholar is that when you, when you, most folks build an understanding of whatever on sort of a speed read version of what is ever, of what is in any text. And uh, that's, I think it's a very, very poor way to go. So I got a couple of emails uh, based on that, and I thought I would just respond to these um, and, and kind of talk through them because I think they, um, they're they sort of revelatory of some mindsets, I think, that need to be corrected. This first one, I can't remember uh, who sent this to me. I would copied and pasted it into a, a Word document. I didn't put the name down. I'm very sorry. Um, but this person wrote, I'm listening to a podcast, and the guest on it, was talking about digital discipleship and using our social media platforms because, quote unquote, they need Jesus. She didn't mean it in any other way than how most evangelicals, including myself at one point, um, would have said or thought about it. I used to run social media for a megachurch and I have talked about it in the same way, but for some reason when she said it, it made me cringe. Uh, do people need Jesus? What does this mean? Can you disciple people through Facebook posts and tweets? Um, so a couple comments on this, or sort of some thoughts about this sort of thing. One of the things that's interesting to me is um, the New Testament nowhere sort of encourages, well, 
there, there's a certain kind of a mindset about people who are outside the church that many Christians have. We might imagine that we have Jesus. Those people out there need Jesus. And um, I think that that fosters a kind of an arrogance. I think that that's just arrogant. Um, to sort of imagine that you can diagnose what anybody else needs in their life or whatever. Um, I'm not saying that that people outside the church don't need Jesus. What I am trying to say is that the New Testament addresses how people inside the church are supposed to think about people outside the church. And there's not a lot on this. There's not a lot that informs how people how Christian people are supposed to think about non-Christian people, except more or less to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus says that, uh, quoting Leviticus. Um, and then also treat people with respect. Treat people with respect and with dignity and um, with wisdom. Just be wise with how you relate to outsiders, as Paul says in Colossians 4. Um, and I think that um, Christians are not... I'll take this from Mark 9, where Jesus talks about how it is that when the church invites the marginalized and the socially excluded into the church and provides them with hospitality in the form of conversation and a meal, um, what the church is doing is they're welcoming Jesus and God into the church. They actually, the church enjoys the fellowship of Jesus when they serve the needy and provide hospitality for the socially excluded. And I think that that's a really interesting um, way of putting things on Mark's part, because I think that sort of subtly undercuts, well, not so subtly, I think, it undercuts a sense of arrogance on the part of the church, like the assumption that we are the ones who have Jesus, and you know we need to be careful to dispense him, you know, we got to get out there and uh, give give Jesus to people who don't have him, or when we see other people, we imagine we have something you need. That is simply not how the New Testament um, shapes the mindset of the church. The church is the people who have responded to the call to inhabit the kingdom of God, to turn from certain ways of life, and to cultivate, you know, the the just ways of the kingdom of God. And the church is supposed to see itself as needing. Jesus and needing God, but that's not how the church is to see other people. I think that that fosters arrogance and um, a sub-Christian attitude or a non-Christian attitude toward other people. I, that's just no way to look at other people and regard them with dignity and respect and honor. So I don't, um, yeah, I'm not crazy about that sort of a statement. Also, uh, about discipling people through Facebook posts and tweets. I think that that is a very um, shallow sort of an understanding of how social media works. Uh, was it, uh, Jenny O'Dell's book, um, How to Do Nothing, which I recommended several months ago, is really fascinating um, discussion about this very dynamic, how social media works. It is just, it's worse than just skim reading. People just kind of scroll through stuff and there's a sense in which, um, you know, to re recall a very old expression, the medium is the message about television. Marshall McLuhan, I believe, said that about television. Much the same can be said for social media. Um, 
there's a sense in which our constant engagement with information coming to us from through social media, it, it makes us dumber, it speeds up our, our brains and our processing, and we don't even give anything any kind of attention for too long. And I think in many ways, uh, things that are things that we share on social media, um, basically have the value of the medium itself. And I don't see sharing Christian realities on social media. I just think basically as a way of saying, I'm now writing about things that have very little value further. Um, the way that Christian discipleship works is communities of people gathering together as bodies. So it, it's, um, it's I'm not crazy about this word in this context, but it's very incarnational. It's embodied. It's an embodied reality. The most um, critical part of being Christian is sharing in the Lord's meal, according to the New Testament. That is, it's a, the church gathers to actually eat a meal together and um, do that in such a way that we all experience our, our mutuality and our belongingness to one another and to God. That That's the reality. And so to do that from a distance is to lose some kind of essential parts of what it means to be Christian. When we don't um, see each other's faces and are around each other's bodies and see each other's lives, um, there, there is so much that is lost. I think that just because we tend to see participation in church as showing up to hear a lecture and to sing songs and to get information, we imagine that all that can happen from a distance. You can just do all that on social media, just get more information about Jesus that way. Um, like you can sort of um, make your, be far more efficient with your efforts or something like that. But um, I don't know, efficiency is one of the many values in uh, of modernity in a capitalistic environment that basically hollows out and thins out um, our, our, our realities and has really done, I think, a lot of damage to church communities as well. So yeah, th these kind of thoughts, I think, are just um, very shallowly considered. Oh, and the final the final thought I had about this is uh, when it comes to discipleship, um, I mentioned this in the previous episode, what discipleship is, is a community of people uh, learning how to practice the way of Jesus. That's what that is all about. And um, I've been, I've been thinking more about this. I need to go through, um, think through the New Testament, but there's, I don't think that there is anywhere where that language is kind of that language is used like person a disciples person b that's just not a way that the, the new testament expresses that like we imagine that it's a process that one person does to another person or to other people uh churches are collections of disciples who are which means a learner who are learning how to embody and practice uh, the things that Jesus said to do, but it's not like one person is discipling another person. I know that that's a very common way of expressing things, but just because it's a common way of expressing things doesn't mean it's helpful or right or faithful to what's going on in the New Testament. Uh, I got this email from Ross and he asked, 
a lot of thoughtful questions and um i wondered if other people might have these same ones and so i i just thought i would read this and respond to it in this um venue a lot of thoughts about this and i really ross i really appreciate how you express things here um this is not the whole of the email uh, but he said, I find myself being the type of person that is not evangelistically minded. Um, I, I think that's an interesting way of putting it, because I do believe that there are certain personality types that are sort of get that are more prone to want to evangelize or promote evangelism. Um, they're sort of salesperson type personality types. And there are other kind of personality types, I think, I'll, that are just more thoughtful and careful about how relationships go that are reticent to uh to evangelize because they they know deep down i don't want to treat people like that that's just this doesn't feel good or right or honoring to another person and i think that that's there's something profound about that um there's something profound about uh that sense that people have in jesus's instruction to treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. And I don't like it uh, when some random person comes up to me and enthusiastically gives me a hard sell about some product or whatever. And I don't, which is one reason why I have always felt like I don't want to treat someone else like that because I don't want someone to do that to me. So anyway, I think there's something really big there that ought to be taken seriously. Also, uh, Ross continues, I'm learning to embrace the freedom from pressure to evangelize in my relationships. Yes. Again, that, that makes me think of one of the dominant metaphors in Luke's gospel for salvation is liberation, freedom. And so if this high pressure um, impulse to evangelize makes us feel oppressed or uh, just sort of gives us a lack of freedom. Uh, there's something again, profoundly clashing there are sent because, because salvation ought to feel like freedom and liberation. We, that ought to be sort of the emotional experience of being Christian. So if there's pressure and oppression, something's wrong. Something's totally wrong. All right. Uh, a couple things I've wondered about in terms of evangelism at the intersection between the New Testament letters and my own life are, and he's got uh, 17 of these. So this is going to go on for like two hours. I'm just kidding. Just uh, four of these. He asked first in response to what I'd said in the previous episode was evangelism not talked about much in the letters because it was taken for granted it, that it was happening. This isn't an implied statement that this is genuinely a question about whether it was happening and if that was why Paul didn't feel pressure to address it. Um, it's hard to, in one sense, Ross, that's kind of non-falsifiable. I can't really address it because it's just, it's silence. So um, I know over the years I've read some arguments for this or that position or interpretation um, kind of resting on like an implied premise. And the reason why this writer doesn't express it is that it's so obvious. Well, it's like, ah. Eh. I'm always skeptical about that. Um, I, I would think that if that were the case, you would, you'd find some hints somewhere. Like, um, surely if this is an important activity, 
uh, on the part of the church, someone at some point would have said to do it. And there are just no statements anywhere to do it. So um, I, I don't think so. Um, I was thinking about an analogy. I mean, it, it's the same thing as sort of, and I'm not trying to reduce what you've said to silliness here, Ross, but there's the same amount of evidence that churches were evangelizing in the New Testament as there, there, as there is evidence that the church churches or apostles felt that it was really important that every Christian learn to ride a unicycle. It's just that you never see it because the apostles knew that it would be happening. So it's just kind of hard to address that other than to say, I would think that it would be stated somewhere. Second question is the evangelist in the fivefold ministry. And this is taken from Ephesians 4.11, a role in every community that not everybody is necessarily intended to fill, but that one or more people would fill. Uh, that may be the case. I mean, Paul does say that God gave to the church these gifts, you know, apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. Um, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, evangelists are church planters. They would they would go to some place where there is no church, and they would uh, proclaim the gospel in um, in non Jewish settings. That might take a long time, like months or even years. In Paul's case, um, and there would be a church established, and then that church planter would move on to some new place. And, and that church would not necessarily be the basis for evangelism. It would just be a kingdom of God community learning the practices of the kingdom of God. Um, I don't, I don't think that there would naturally be one of those in every community. I just can't say. Um, certainly there were many churches around the Mediterranean world that didn't have an apostle. Um, there was a limited number of them. Um, they may have had a prophet. Uh, visiting them or serving a range of churches. And I think that the the evangelists were also limited, but evangelists were not like people in churches that would just preach the gospel or share the gospel or whatever. They would, they'd go to far-flung places or just towns and cities where there was no church and seek to establish one. So they weren't really ministering in a local church. Um, a third question, even though Paul never instructs churches to evangelize, he does seem to care deeply that evangelism happens. And he makes reference to Ephesians 6, 19, 20. Uh, yes, that's right. This was one of Paul's tasks as an apostle. He's doing it, and he requests prayer for, for the task. Um, but just as every um, every Christian is not an apostle, they're, they're a limited number, they have a special task, and part of that was church establishing churches. Also, Paul didn't see it as only his job, 2 Timothy Four five. Yes, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of, of an evangelist as well, because Timothy is one of he's one of those. That's his that's his role. Um, he's he's part of Paul's ministry team, and then Paul also sends him out to do uh, establishing churches as well. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, you know, what he needs to hear in order to establish that church in Ephesus, and then. Um, appoint elders, and uh, presumably by that point, Timothy's work would be done, and he'd move on to somewhere else. Um, Ross asks, am I, am I just happy to take the comfortable way out and not evangelize? Am I reacting to the way Western Christianity has abused evangelism and so I'm eager to dismiss something central to early Christian practice? I think those are good questions to be asking yourself, um, and I think that that's what thoughtful people do. Um, but again, it's just, 
if this were something like, well, if this task were, were something explicitly commanded or exhorted in the New Testament, then I would say it's important for us, like uh, serving the poor, visiting people in prison, um, welcoming foreigners, um, loving and serving our neighbors in ways that are practical and don't involve, you know, preaching. So it's it because it's just not mentioned. I don't think that you're taking the comfortable way out. Um, and I don't, I, there certainly are abuses. Um, but again, when Paul says in, uh, Romans 16, that he has preached the gospel throughout a vast range of the Mediterranean world. And like, basically gospel preaching is done because churches are established. Um, if, if there's a church in your city, then there's no need for evangelism. The task of the church is not to get more people into the church. It's to just be the church, be a community that is learning to, to um, practice the, the way of life that Jesus taught. And no part of that, involves getting more people in. I think that that's, um, I think that very mindset has to be changed. Um, in Matthew, Jesus says that um, he is going to build his church and the church's job is to just be the church and let Jesus, I mean, he said he's going to do it. He never said anybody else to do it. Or he never mentioned that anybody else should do it. Um, and I, yeah, this is one I wanted to get around to. Um, a fourth question, does Peter's admonition to always have an explanation, that's from 1 Peter 3.15, imply a form of evangelism, though not the pushy or manipulative forms or ex our expressions of Christianity engage in? Um, no, I don't think that that involves any kind of a form uh, of evangelism. I think what's going on there in that if you look at the, this is a, another one of those um, times when I would go back to what I said a minute ago. Um, look carefully at the text. First Peter 3.15 is yet another passage that's just kind of thrown out with the, the assumption, we all know what it says. I just don't think that that's the case. Look at the context. Um, that's a larger context in which Peter is addressing almost about the whole letter. Uh, people who are suffering, churches that are undergoing suffering and mistreatment and injustice. And keep in mind, um, a massive majority of the population of every church in the Mediterranean world was were slaves. So these are people that are enduring routine mistreatment. And church communities were populated by people that were on the margins of, uh, of society in a variety of ways um, beyond slavery. Um, but Peter is addressing people who are just enduring mistreatment, uh, like women and wives in the earlier part of that chapter. And then to summarize a whole range of what he has said, Peter talks about having solidarity with Jesus, who was unjustly treated and later exalted. So if you are being treated unjustly um, and you don't retaliate, and Peter is exhorting non-retaliation, identify strongly with Jesus because he endured unjust treatment in the present evil age and um, post-death he was exalted to God's right hand. He was vindicated by God. He was um, he was exalted by God. And that too will happen to you, is what Peter is telling these people, if you endure mistreatment 
and do not retaliate. Um, and so sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Like hold fast to this figure who was mistreated and later exalted. That is such a big deal because that is the only way that you will be able to endure and that will fire you up with hope to endure mistreatment and unjust treatment. And it will you know, further your hope that you will be exalted um, after you die or when the Lord returns or whatever Peter is thinking there. Um, and then he gets to a place where, uh, where he says, uh, always being ready to give an answer to anybody asks you why you have this hope. What's the reason for your hope? And so think about the specific thing that's happening there. These are people being unjustly treated. And the people Peter is saying, they may, they may ask you, like, you slave, I'm, I'm beating the snot out of you. I'm trying to crush your hope. I'm trying to even provoke you to retaliate like so many other people would do in so many other households. Why are you not retaliating? Why is it that you have, that you have some kind of hope in just being alive in the world? Um, why is that? And Peter is saying, if, if anybody asks you how you are enduring this kind of mistreatment, be ready to, to just express that because I'm having solidarity with the suffering and exalted Jesus. That's how I'm enduring this mistreatment, and that's why I'm not retaliating. And that's it. This is not an exhortation to have a, you know, a well-honed evangelistic pitch. It's not any kind of a, um, a passage that should provide us with any kind of a pressure to evangelize. It's just, you know, so know how you are having solidarity with Jesus so that you can just survive this mistreatment. Um, so that if somebody asks you, you can just say, here's the reason. Because Jesus suffered unjustly and was exalted. I know that I will endure this mistreatment and will be exalted in the end as well. So anyway, um, yeah, that's what's happening there. Anyway, Ross, thank you for those uh, for those really thoughtful questions. I totally get that um, after, after sort of hearing something, you know, your entire life or your entire Christian experience, it's hard to dismantle sort of things that are felt to be central. Um, I've, I've gone through a number of paradigm shifts in my own uh, sort of journey. So I completely get it. And I, I think that these were just really thoughtful. I, uh, I love how, I love how Ross ended this. Um, he says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these. Again, I personally hate evangelizing. So these aren't intended. Anyway, I thought that that was really funny because I think it's so true. It's like we know that this is a miserable task and it's just, it, it's kind of cringe inducing. And we feel like we're being more or less untrained uh, used car salesmen when we approach other people or we're giving some kind of canned pitch. And that just feels like it's no way to treat somebody. And this is sort of one of my basic uh, filters or rules, you know, when I consider my Christian identity and Christian practice. Um, if I ever say something like that, like I personally hate doing this, this part of being Christian, it's like, well, maybe there's something that is, there's something wrong there. Um, again, the, the emotional experience and the actual holistic experience of being Christian ought to be something that we love. It ought to be liberating. It ought to lift our hearts and um, 
you know, make us feel like we're fully leaning into our humanity. And if it doesn't feel like that, something's off. And if we say about anything, I hate doing that part. Um, there's that's, I mean, the parts that ought to be difficult to do, um, are like not retaliating because to retaliate against people who have treated us unjustly is a way of sort of degrading our own souls and participating in the destructive patterns of behavior of someone else. And it's difficult to take self-control to not retaliate. Um, but we shouldn't have to kind of uh, get ourselves all jacked up and motivated like we're at a multi-level marketing, you know, meeting, getting fired up about selling more and all that kind of stuff in order to do some of these tasks. I think I asked this question a while back. Um, would you be Christian if there was no hell? Because I think there are a lot of people who are Christian um, only to avoid going to hell and only to avoid, you know, pissing off an angry God. Well, what if he's really great? And what if being Christian is really great? And what if this, this whole reality um, is an experience that you should really like? I think that I think that would just make us kind of look differently at things. Um, anyway. Uh, oh, yeah. One last thought on this. I know um, I was talking to someone a while back about this and they said, well, how else are people going to know? How else is the news going to get out uh, if we don't do this? And what I think is really strategic to do in thinking about being Christian is whenever you kind of bump into that kind of a question, well, how else? Um, there's a lot that there's a lot that sort of sits underneath kind of questions like that, in my opinion. Um, I think that that's a way for someone to say, um, you know, the current horizons of my imagination are so limited that I I don't have the capacity to think creatively about other ways this can be done, or um, the limits of my imagination are so limited because I've, I've only known what I've always heard. And I can't imagine a different way of being Christian or of thinking as a Christian person. Um, and just keep in mind that the way of the God of Israel, the way of the, the God who is the father of Jesus, the Christian God is so profoundly counterintuitive. And, and his ways are counter counterintuitive. He's the God who is always choosing the younger over the older. In the ancient world, that is just not how things are done. He's always doing things backwards, always doing things wrong uh, or countercultural or counterintuitive. According to the rules of what it means to be a God, uh, the God of Christian scripture is always doing it wrong. And um, I mean, just to give one narrative... Uh, so just to continue that thought, so to be Christian and to confess faith in the one true God um, is to sign up to a program where all of your intuitions have to be sort of regarded with suspicion because you'll always think about being Christian in a way that is that feels natural. Um, and your imagination is is it's just captive to all of your experiences and it's also captive to your fears. It's captive to your own ambitions. and you'll sort of always go wrong if you 
think as a Christian person according to what seems intuitive and seems to make sense. Um, and you'll usually be wrong and you'll miss out on something far better, far more liberating, far more freeing and, and um, filled with goodness. It's just one crazy example, a narrative example from the Old Testament. Think about when biblical Israel uh, was led into the land and one of the first things uh, they were called to do is for some reason the God of Israel wanted um, uh, to rain down judgment on Jericho. And you remember how they ended up doing it? Like, okay, how do you take down a city? Well, you sit down with the military strategist and you make a plan. And this is not how God wants to do things. He's like, yo, get all your instruments. We're just going to march around that baby. I mean, what the heck is that? That's just bananas. Um, and I can multiply examples of this kind of thing of God intentionally doing something in a bizarro way, just because that's how he wants to do it. Um, and I think the same, our same intuition, uh, because God is counter to our intuitions. I think the same intuition has to be regarded with suspicion when it comes to how we imagine churches growing parenthesis, um, how we imagine whether or not it's appropriate to, to want churches to grow. Anyway, that's another issue. Um, but when we imagine how this all should look and how other people will sign up for this, we imagine that it has to kind of start with a sales pitch or we have a sales push, an evangelism push, an evangelism explosion, if you will. Um, but since that is not what the, what the church is told to do in the pages of the New Testament, uh, to my mind, that's, that's obviously not the way that God wants this worked out. And when we ask questions like, well, how else will they know? Or how else will we get the word out? Or, well, how else? It's like, what? Well, I don't know. I don't really know. But apparently, if I'm attending carefully to the pages of the New Testament, that's not for me to have to figure out. It's pretty clear that the church is given instructions to embody the life of the kingdom of God and learn the practices of God's uh, of God's justice, because that's what he calls the church to do. And I just think it's got to be enough. It has to be enough for um, for us and for people who are church leaders, etc., pastors who want to see their churches grow or whatever. It has to be enough for us to just do the things that Jesus says without wanting to kind of get some kind of payoff with an opportunity to share the gospel. It has to be enough to just do what he says to do. It seems to me anyway. I want to tell you about a book. It's by my friend Nijay Gupta, and it's called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. It's just been released and is published by IVP Academic. Nijay is a highly productive scholar who writes for the academy and the church. Just as importantly, he's just a wonderful person. Beth Allison Barr, the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, provides a foreword, which is fitting since much of Barr's book contains stories of women involved in gospel ministry throughout church history. And this is just what Nijay does throughout his work. He foregrounds the too often neglected accounts of women who led God's people, both biblical Israel and the New Testament church. The book has two parts to it. In the first part, Nijay elaborates on how women were portrayed in scripture before the early church. He writes quite a bit about Deborah, who led biblical Israel for decades. 
He then focuses on Genesis 1 and 2 to depict God's original design for male and female to be mutual partners in carrying out the task of managing creation's flourishing on God's behalf. It was only after human rebellion that destructive power dynamics corrupted human relationships. Far from being God's design, God aims to redeem humanity from relational hierarchies between men and women. Nietzsche has an extensive chapter on women in the ancient world, and it's a far more complex reality than is often thought. Just as family structures at any point in history and in various cultures are always more complex than we might assume. But he sets the table well for a subsequent discussion of how women play prominent roles in the life and ministry of Jesus. In the book's second part, Nietzsche focuses on the women leaders in the early church, highlighting especially Phoebe, Prisca, or Priscilla, and Junia. These women were just as involved in ministry and risk-taking mission as any of the apostles and church leaders who are familiar to us. Gupta does a fantastic job of drawing out how the New Testament's portrayal of these gifted leaders and demonstrating what we can and can't say from the evidence available. In two appendices that close the book, Nije deals with some passages that are often used to prevent women from serving the church just as extensively as men. He expertly treats 1 Timothy 2 in its wider context, and I found his discussion just profoundly sane. I agree with this conclusion, that there's just too much that is unknown about the situation that provoked the letter to build anything solid on it. He also explores the household codes in the New Testament and their relevance to contemporary discussions. On one hand, I have to say that I'm weary of this discussion. I just don't like having any discussions where the value and dignity of certain people is up for grabs. In this case, women. I think that's just generally bad human behavior, and frankly, I find it sub-Christian. I know that on the surface, some patriarchal folks would not imagine that they're doing this, but this is, in fact, what is going on in the experience of women in many churches. I think that subterranean desires for power and control within an ideological context determined by capitalism explains much of modern patriarchy in Christian churches and institutions. All of this is to say, I'm certainly not the person to write a book like this. I just don't have Nietzsche's very patient and gentle manner, not to mention his erudition and command of ancient literature and history. This is indeed an important contribution and will help loads of folks appreciate that scripture portrays women as thoroughly involved in leadership among God's people throughout the ages. Nije Gupta is the author of this book. It's called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. It's published by IVP Academic. Get it from an independent bookstore. So in the previous episode, I was talking about how the Bible is a library. It's a collection of texts. When you carry around your Bible, you're not just carrying around one book so that you can kind of flip through the pages and read a section here, read a section there, and really you know, be reading the Bible wisely. Scripture is a library of texts. It's, a, it's got a variety of literatures within it, and each of those kinds of literature has its own distinct ways of making meaning. Uh, and it's why it's a, it's a good idea to grapple with those and recognize those so that you can understand what's being said or what's being communicated. Um, and they all differ from each other. They are just not the same kinds of, uh, of texts. For example, 
just to talk about the New Testament for a bit, uh, you've got the four Gospels and Acts, which are narratives. Those are, in many ways, um, portraying the life of Jesus and the kingdom of God. They're, they're sort of portraying uh, who Jesus is, what he did, what's he like, uh, what's his relationship to the God of Israel, and what kind of movement uh, did he create? It's sort of, um, and because they're narrative texts um, and, and meant to be distributed widely, um, they're not targeting any singular situation. They're meant to be read by as wide of an audience as possible because they're speaking to um, you know believers and non-believers. They're meant to be distributed to churches all over the Mediterranean world and giving a big picture of what this is all about. Um, that's very different than what is happening in each of the New Testament letters. The New Testament letters are written to address specific situations uh, that have popped up. That have emerged. Um, very often a problem has occurred or a church is breaking down. Um, a church that was supposed to sort of have its life by the Gospels and orienting its community dynamics in light of the Gospels. Somehow the kingdom of God life has gone off the rails and an apostle will address that sp specific situation strategically with a specific message to that church or community of churches. And so the things that are said in those situations are very targeted and very strategic and specific. They're not um, sort of meant to be distributed widely and kind of speaking a message to as wide of an audience as possible. So when you're reading, say, the Gospel of Luke, you've got to be in a different frame of mind than when you're flipping over and reading 1 Corinthians, the way that uh, you know the words on the page just are not meant to be read in the same way. When you're reading Luke, the questions are, you know, uh, how is Jesus behaving here? How is how is he relating to the different characters in these narratives? What are people saying to Jesus? Uh, how does he respond to them? What does he say to different characters? How do events take place? Where's the setting? All of those things are important for how narratives make their meaning. We need a different set of questions when we turn over to the New Testament letters. There's a sense in which if if we were to relate this um, to sort of by analogy uh, to one single person's pastoral ministry, uh, if you imagine a pastor who has preached Sunday uh, morning after Sunday morning for 10 years, and then she or he uh, counsels parishioners over uh, 10 years or so, there's a sense in which that pastor's um, preaching ministry is akin to the Gospels. It's broad. It's sort of casting a vision for our community as a whole. And uh, the New Testament letters are kind of like a pastor's uh, you know, transcripts from counseling sessions. When a person comes in and their you know, life is falling apart, having trouble in the family or just general confusion over things, um, wise pastor is going to give strategic targeted counsel for that person. They're not going to just speak in generalities the same way they would speak on a Sunday morning to the gathered community. That's sort of what is happening in the letters. When things go wrong, uh, a specific situation has to be addressed. So um, that's important when we're thinking about our lives and we're thinking about our engagement with scripture. Um, 
the way that I will want to read, say, a passage from Luke. If I'm going to read a chapter of Luke, think about it, uh, ponder it, try to understand what's happening in that narrative, and um, think about maybe seeing things differently after I have uh, read that, um, because that's who Jesus is. This is the life of the kingdom of God. Uh, how do I now look around at my life, and um, how do we look around at our lives as a community um, and make some adjustments? With New Testament letters, we have to keep in mind what is being addressed. Like, what's the crisis Paul is addressing in First and Second Corinthians, and what are the what are the contours of it? Um, because the way that he will sort of confront the Corinthians in those two letters and address them very specifically with like targeted exhortations, it may not be anything that's helpful for me. I mean, it, it may not be anything that would make any kind of sense for um, my community's life because we're just not in a moment that, you know, uh, that the Corinthians were in. It's just not applicable. Um Certainly, there are takeaways from how Paul theologically reasons and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but those are just very, very strategic and targeted. So even though, you know, 1 Corinthians is not too far removed from where Luke is geographically in our Bibles, uh, when I'm looking at words from Luke, I just have to regard them very differently than how I would regard words from Paul to the Corinthians. Um, anyway. Same goes for so much of what's happening in the rest of Scripture. Um, so I thought I would just talk about some of the conventions and some of the the uniquenesses of what we find in our Bibles, <clears throat> in Christian Scripture. And of course, uh, things begin with narrative. Um, the first five books of Moses, also called uh, Torah, um, the Mosaic Law, is largely narrative, largely narrative. Um it's it sort of narrates uh, the foundations of um, of God's relationship with Abraham and then with with Israel, all of that. But there are there are loads of different conventions that you find in Torah itself. So, like Genesis one, there's it's it's highly poetic, it's highly stylized. So when you're thinking about um, what exactly is happening in Genesis one, certainly uh, many folks who are you know, have their minds shaped by a, a modern scientific view of things, will tend to read Genesis 1 as if it is like a, a scientific description of exactly what God was doing when. But is that the best way to read that text if it's highly stylized and poetic? I think not. There's, there, there's something other going on there than just sort of like a hard, fast, one-to-one -one correspondence of, you know, like a scientific reading of that of that passage. Um, also, you find in Torah, uh, the first and the second giving of the law. So these are legal texts. And what's really helpful is to understand how legal texts work in the ancient world. And I know that people get tripped up. Certainly, um, Western Christians get really tripped up reading the Mosaic Law because things seem so draconian and severe and, and God just seems awful. And like, Oh my word, uh, you know, a rebellious child should be stoned to death and all that. Uh, what's interesting is to read legal texts from around the ancient near East, uh, which is, 
the time and the area where um, uh, you know Israel was doing its thing and God delivered uh, the, the... Sorry, I had a huge Indian lunch. And I, my brain is foggy. It was totally worth it. I just hope I can make some sense for the rest of this episode. Um, anyway, contemporaneous uh, legal texts are really, really, really helpful in understanding what's happening in Torah. So a lot of these um, sort of severe sounding penalties for certain uh, crimes or sins or behaviors or whatever you want to call them, um, these are not necessarily like a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Legal texts are primarily revelations of the character of the king. So in ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, a king would sort of trot out his, his laws so that you understood his character. You understood his expectations of what was going to be happening in that nation or the tribe or the region or whatever it was. And the same thing is going on in the Mosaic law. These are God's priorities. This is his heart. And these were not sort of hard and fast, one size fits all pro prescriptions. Um, because you you very seldom ever have accounts in the Old Testament of these actually being carried out. And in biblical Israel, there were judges that were appointed because Torah had to be applied. and it, Judgment was required in a variety of situations. So um, that ought to frame how we think about the first and the second giving of the law when we encounter that in Torah. It's also helpful to keep in mind when reading narratives, uh, we, we want to be very attendant uh, to all the kinds of things that you think about when you read a novel or when you watch a film, the, the kind of things that we should be attending to, like um, how do characters develop? Where are things set? What is said about the setting? When do things happen? How, how is drama developed? How does, um, how does conflict develop and how is it resolved? What happens with what characters say what to what other characters? Um, what characters say what to other characters and what's said in response? All of those things sort of go into how we understand what characters are like and how we should be thinking about those characters. Uh, also, keep in mind that biblical narratives... Um, I'm not denying their historicity when I say this, but it's not necessarily the first thing that is important uh, to stress that, um, you know, the reason why we have these histories is to know exactly what happened. Um, there is no access to any kind of history of exactly what happened. Biblical narratives give us meaningful narrative, meaningful accounts of things that happened. So narratives um, sort of project a constructed world. And certainly the narratives um, in the Old Testament and the New Testament are uh, in many ways kind of divine propaganda. Um, this, is how, this is how the God of Israel wants Israel to see the world. And when we read the New Testament Gospels, the, the writers of the Gospels are not recounting exactly what happened. They're giving their unique... Um, sort of uh, spin on things or their, their unique take on things, or they're, they're portraying Jesus in certain ways and the life of the kingdom of God so that they shape their audience's imaginations about 
how to see the world as if Jesus is king, how to behave in the world as if Jesus is king, what kinds of things happen to the people of God uh, when they're faithful to God, what kinds of things, um, you know, if we're now faithful to the one true God, are our lives just characterized by bliss and ease? Uh, or are things complicated? What do you do when un unexpected events happen? So the Gospels are narratives that project, they create the world, um, they create a way, they create an idealized world, and they invite us, they invite audiences to see the world through that lens, to see that world as if all of that is really real. Um, yeah, I already said a few things about New Testament letters. I'll probably talk quite a bit more about them down the road. But I think the biggest thing to remember about New Testament letters is you are always reading highly situational literature. Uh, I think that's really important to keep in mind when it comes to the letter to the Hebrews. There's some pretty um, tough language in there. That's that's one of the hardest. I think that's more difficult to understand even than uh, the book of Revelation because it's a very unique text written from a Jewish Christian author, which is not an exception. Most of the texts of the New Testament are produced by uh, Jewish Christian people. Um, but the letter to the Hebrews is written to a Jewish Christian audience, which is not at all the case for any of Paul's letters. And um, the kind of sort of Christianity that uh, is being addressed in Hebrews is just very unique. And the way that he argues, the way that that author argues is just very unique and really unusual. Um, but when you understand that that community was going through something very specific and very unique and had some unique privileges as well um, and had and had a unique historic connection to biblical Israel, actually, that is not true of um, of me or of most non-Jewish people that read their Bibles these days. And it really wasn't even true of the kinds of communities that Paul would have written his letters to. That community had a unique tie to um, biblical Israel that made that author write to them in certain specific ways. I mean, all that has to be kept in mind when you read those like very severe warnings, um, like in Hebrews uh, 5-ish, 4, 5, 6, somewhere in there. It's been a while since I've read Hebrews. Um, anyway, those warnings can be um, catastrophic to people. I mean, cause all kinds of anxiety. But I think it's a legitimate question whether they can ever be applied to anybody other than that community. So that's a really a big, um, a big point to keep in mind in thinking about New Testament letters. The extent to which they are quote unquote applicable or the ways that we should appropriate them um, have to be very carefully thought through because New Testament letter writers say things to churches that they might not say to our communities, or maybe they would. Um, we just have to go through a considered thought process, in my opinion. Um, loads of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. There's apocalyptic in uh, the Old Testament prophets. You maybe could say that there's apocalyptic in certain Psalms. Um, but apocalyptic just means unveiling or revelation. And it usually has uh, sort of wild imagery where the heavens are opened and you, you get a view of God 
you know, building his war machine, his cosmic war machine or whatever, coming in judgment. And you get crazy language like, uh, the you know, the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky. I mean, it's language of catastrophe. These are not uh, meant to be taken literalistically or, um, like I said, at the, at the same level as, as narrative, for example. Like, this will happen. The stars will fall from the sky. This is just, these are ways where, you know, prophets who are largely musicians and poets and um, offbeat kind of people um, speaking directly to biblical Israel and calling them back to faithfulness. This is language that they use to portray imminent catastrophe or uh, to portray um, God's mighty salvation that's coming way down the road. And there's also apocalyptic in other parts of the Bible, obviously the book of Revelation itself, but you get little bits of apocalyptic language scattered throughout, um, scattered throughout the Gospels here and there um, in the New Testament letters. But certainly the one big letter, the book of Revelation, is, is thoroughly characterized by apocalyptic language. And that has to be handled with, with great care, just like um, that has to be handled by people who are familiar with Jewish apocalypses from around the time of the first century, because that's the convention that the writer of Revelation used, or the set of conventions. So how Revelation means is, again, very different from how New Testament narratives mean, very different from how New Testament letters mean. Um, John, the revelator, does things his own way, and um, has to be understood along the lines of, of, of that form of literature. I did an entire episode way back in the day uh, on uh, the, the household codes in the New Testament and how those are meant to function and how it is that these do not address the modern nuclear family. And um, you find there's the household code form is kind of used in First Peter, uh, we find one in Colossians 3 and 4 and in Ephesians 5 and 6. And those are passages where it's like, boy, you see some instruction to husbands and you see instruction to wives and children and parents and uh, slaves and slave masters. And it's easy to just assume that this is instruction just directly to families. Here is how to have the good Christian family. Husbands are providers, leaders, wives submit and do stuff at home and, you know, kids obey their parents. Um, and then certainly modern treatments. I always think it's so interesting. Most people that um, will be very insistent that this is how modern or modern Christian families ought to function will be insistent that um, we take very seriously female subordination uh, in Christian homes, and we'll be very insistent on a, a strict reading of those texts. But then we'll get to the uh, slaves and slave masters portion and kind of back off a little bit and say, well, we don't really have that in our day, uh, which is not entirely true. We don't really have that in our day. But what we can do is apply this to uh, employees and employers, the, the workplace set of relationships, which um, is to my mind a very inconsistent and hypocritical way of reading those passages um, because there's some sort of like hermeneutical strictness uh, 
in the first two sets of pairs and then a great amount of hermeneutical flexibility in the last set of pair uh in the last pair which i think is is kind of hypocritical beyond all that um it's a failure to take seriously what household code texts were doing in the ancient world and um again just like it's really helpful to understand biblical legal literature by looking around the ancient near east and seeing how um how does that ancient legal texts meant and how how they constructed their meaning is very instructive to look around at first century um and from a few centuries before that to look at uh greco-roman household codes and to find out what they were doing when they used them and political writers from the ancient world when they wanted to talk about like what the just society would look like um they wouldn't get into abstract discussions they wouldn't say, well, people should treat each other basically with justice and kindness. Um, you know, hopefully we have a fair society. They were like, look, let's just get let's get concrete. And we can't talk about all of Athens because that's just too huge. And we can't talk about how the guy that runs the waterworks should behave himself and all that. Let's boil down society to its lowest common, this lowest unit. And that is the household. So let's talk about household management um and and what justice looks like excuse me what a well-functioning society looks like at that level because what you could just do is kind of blow blow that up and that's the concrete set of relationships that we're are going to stand in for how we want our whole culture to function so ancient political writers are not talking about the nuclear family. They're not talking about even really the ancient household in order to talk about how households should function. They're talking about the household as kind of a, um, an analogy or an example um, of the entire culture. It's the entire culture in a nutshell. So I think it's really helpful to keep that in mind when we come to the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians to say nothing of first, uh, first Peter and um, the ones found in the pastorals. What is Paul doing when he's talking about these relationships? I think it's important uh, to say that he's he's not talking about the modern nuclear family, which did not really exist in the ancient world. Um, he's not even talking about the Christian household, because for Paul, uh, the Christian household is the church. It's the household of God. And what he's doing is he's picking up that ancient convention to talk about what he really cares about, how the church as God's new society should function. This is how all your relationships should look in the church, not in the home. Um, and since I can't really talk about all the sets of relationships, Ships. I'm going to use the, uh, these three sets of pairs uh, to talk about a concrete set of relationships, and you take your cues from this. So um, how Paul portrays the ideal society, the ideal kingdom of God society, is quite a bit different from how the ancient uh, political thinkers thought about you know, the ideal Athens or the ideal city or whatever. It's quite a bit different. And the relationships that are oriented by justice. But just to say, the household code form 
constructs its meaning in a very specific way. It's, it means in a unique way. And if you're not attendant to what Paul is doing when he uses that form, which is a recognized form from the ancient world, you're going to miss the point. I think that many, if not most, modern interpreters or um, certainly many uh, male pastors have indeed missed the point. And those texts have been used as texts of oppression um, for people in socially marginalized situations like women, wives, and children. To say nothing of how awfully those texts were used um, in, the, um, in the American South, uh, where white slave owners um, basically had preachers come in to enslaved African people and uh, Africans who were brought to the States as um, for manual labor. Um, preachers were brought in and to preach those texts and they were used as uh, texts of terror, which is, is truly awful. Anyway, um, my brain's turning to mush because of my Indian lunch. So I'm going to call it to a halt there. I just wanted to talk a little bit in these two episodes about how it is that um, the Bible is a library and how texts um, mean, has to be uh, given attention to, and that all of the texts in the Bible mean in different ways according to the kinds of literature and wise Bible readers will recognize that. All right. Um, I don't even know where I'm going from here in sort of this season four of, of wandering through how to engage with the Bible or just engaging with the Bible. And um, we'll see where it goes from here. I'm traveling beginning tomorrow to see friends and family. So I'm not going to put out an episode next week. I may be putting one out the week after. I really don't know what my schedule holds from here on out, or I haven't looked at my calendar to know off the top of my head. Anyway, I noted earlier that it's so lovely here in West Michigan. So I think I'm going to go out for a walk and enjoy it. And I'll say it with Bono, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Mm -hmm.